podcast one production. G'day, I'm Tim Harcourt and welcome to the Airport Economist. In this series, I'll take you to the key markets of the world where you can do business and do it well. I'll guide you through the economics, politics and social history of each place and talk to an expert about the tricks and traps of doing business in each particular market. But first, strap yourself in because in this episode, we're off to Uruguay. When I arrived in Uruguay for the first time, I chalked up 58 countries as the airport economist, which I was pretty chuffed about. At the hotel in Montevideo, the press was waiting. So I said a few words at the microphone. At the local university, I got a massive crowd, around 3,000 plus students, so I was pretty happy. But when the students all filed out in excitement, the penny dropped. Boca Juniors, the famous Argentine soccer team that produced Maradona, was in town to play local team Nacional in the South American Champions League. The students got free tickets to the game if they went to my lecture, and the Boca team was staying at my hotel hence the microphone and the press facilities. It all made sense after all, because Uruguay is soccer mad, and it really punches above its weight. Uruguay has two World Cups, as many as France, and the most Copa America championships. When I was in Uruguay on this occasion, I also learned that it punches above its weight as an economy too, despite being dwarfed by its larger neighbours Brazil and Argentina, and choked by the Mercosur trade pact it has with its two large neighbours plus Paraguay and Venezuela. Uruguay may be only 3.5 million people, but it's top of the pops when it comes to attracting foreign investment and ease of doing business. It's no surprise I noticed the airport was amazingly efficient. No queues, no visas, no hidden taxes. The head of the Uruguayan Chamber of Commerce met me personally, picked me up, and the entire board met me that evening at Uruguay's best steakhouse restaurant. Each member had been to 70 countries themselves and were consciously international in mindset. No wonder The Economist magazine made Uruguay the country of the year when I was there. Once on the plane back to Australia via Buenos Aires, I met the Uruguayan national rugby team, Los Terros, who were on their way to play in New Zealand. It reminded me that Uruguay used to be called the Switzerland of South America. Perhaps New Zealand is a better comparison. After all, both are small agricultural nations committed to open markets and free trade, but combined progressive social policies with astute fiscal management. But whilst New Zealand has an economically strong Australia as its closest neighbour, Uruguay has Brazil and Argentina. So given that predicament, if Australia is called the lucky country, then Uruguay is the plucky country, a small country who can still surprise on the world stage. Joining me now is Consul General for Uruguay, Conrado Silveira. Conrado, welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Tim. Now, Uruguay is regarded as quite a small country, but it's actually quite big, isn't it? It's bigger than England, if you look on the map. Actually, it's as big as England and Wales. Yeah, Combined. Not, not yeah. the whole of the UK, but um, yeah. I mean, big in, in land surface, but we are only 3.4 million. So not that big in, in population. And so it's a little bit smaller than... New Zealand in population. That's correct. And um, half of that number is uh, located in the capital city in Montevideo. And the rest is mostly residing on the border between Argentina and between Argentina and Uruguay. Yes. 
So uh, it's mostly located alongside the, the, the border on the Rio Uruguay, the Uruguay River, and um, Montevideo. Now, I uh, when I flew back from uh, Uruguay, I, I took the ferry from Buenos Aires, which is Australian-made, yeah. in, in Cata, yeah. right, made it. Yeah. And then I flew back via Argentina and Chile, and I met the Uruguayan rugby team, because I knew you had a famous soccer team, but uh, a rugby team as well. Yeah, we are, we are trying to catch up with our neighbours and uh, obviously trying to catch up with, with Australia and New Zealand as well. But obviously um, rugby doesn't take um, such a big role as um, soccer does. So well, soccer, you're a powerhouse. You won the World Cup, the first World Cup. You beat Brazil in 1950. That's correct. I mean, the first ever World Cup uh, took place in Uruguay yep. at the Estadio Centenario. Yes. Which was uh, purpose-built for the final of the first ever World Cup. And uh, so we, we are very proud of uh, having hosted, uh, having been able to, to host that event. So we won the first one in 1930, and then we uh, won the second World Cup in 1950 against Brazil in Brazil. In the America. In Maracana. They're pretty upset Brazil, weren't they? About oh that? yes, yes. Yeah. It was uh, it was a national uh, disaster because uh, they they were not really uh, prepared for that. They even had all their celebrations um, ready to take place <laughs> after the finals. The Uruguayan team was um, a bit of an amateur team. Yeah. I mean, most of them had a uh, uh, you know their Another main job. jobs. Uh, yeah. So um, yeah, that's that's uh, quite a big. Um, Issue and in in our in our history, Brazil, Uruguay, and there is something we call the the Fantasma in Maracana, which is the Maracana ghost. Uh -huh. um, yeah, because some um, they feared. I mean, something like that might happen again. I mean, quite unlikely at the moment, but um, one day the, the ghost still exists. the ghost lives. Now, apart from football, what what's the thing that surprises people about Uruguay when you talk when you say I'm the consul general from Uruguay? Well, I think that the main thing is how small in population the country is mm. uh, that that surprises the people um because you know compared to brazil and argentina uruguay is really a very small place so it's quite remarkable i think that we have managed to um keep our identity and uh, our you know sense of nationality throughout history with these two giant neighbors and quite powerful neighbors um uh, not only in the region, but also in the, in the world. So um, I think most people are quite sympathetic with this idea of the underdog. And also that can be translated in, in things like how we have been able to, to perform in, for example, soccer or in economics or in exports and, and, and other things. Because you perform very well economically, haven't you, for a small country sandwiched between two quite protectionist countries, Brazil and yeah. Argentina, you've won Economist Country of the Year and yes. quite open to foreign investment? That's correct. Um, I mean, historically, we have been very much attached to what happened in both Argentina and Brazil, especially Argentina. And uh, we have had a pretty severe um, crisis in 2001, which was mostly related to uh, the crisis in, that took place in Argentina. And since then, we have tried to correct all the components of the economy that 
made that possible and we try our economy to become independent of these fluctuations. I mean, obviously we are still um, very dependent, especially when it comes to, to tourism. I mean, we receive over a million uh, Argentine tourists every year. They own a lot of land and, and properties in, in Uruguay, in Punta del Este. So uh, from that point of view, we are still um, very much related. But let's say the openness of our economy, the destination of our exports has improved in diversity since uh, that financial crisis. Right now, for example, Argentina is only our second export destination in, in the region after Brazil. I mean, the percentage comes to only 6%, Brazil only 13%, when historically those figures were over 30%. So we are now uh, trying to diversify the markets. China is at the moment the, the number one uh, mm. trading partner. Mm. It has been that way for the last five, six years at least. Um, China takes about 22% of our export, exports. And then come Brazil, and then the United States, and some countries in the EU. What type of things do you sell to the world? Is it meat, dairy, leather? Beef is our number one commodity, followed closely by um, soybeans and pulp for, for the production of uh, paper, cellulose pulp. So it's basically an agricultural-oriented economy. Also, um, rice is very important, uh, dairy products, leather, wood, and other agricultural products. So um, that's where the, most of the investment opportunities are because it's mostly on um, yeah, the agro-industries, as, as we call them, agro-industry, that's the biggest sector, without considering the tourism sector, which is obviously um, a very important sector when it comes to income. In Uruguay, we receive every year a figure equivalent to over the, the the size of our population. Oh, really? In tourists? Yeah. So you, we are 3.4 and we received close to 4 million wow. tourists per so year. So as many tourists as you've got in Uruguayan. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so that's also one of the um, areas of interest for potential investors, uh, you know, property on the coast, on the Atlantic coast, mostly Punta del Este and other um, coastline uh, resorts um, because... They can be used not only as uh, enjoyment places, but also investment, as they can be. Left. So these are the Argentines having their beach houses in Punta del Este, they'll, yeah. that's where they're buying them. Yeah. Okay, yeah. So you can, you can develop the tourism area. Yeah. Now, now, with Australia, what's the historical connection between Australia and Uruguay? I would say it's a quite, quite important one, and I think it has been um, growing uh, since the 1950s around. Uh, that's when the... Embassy of, of Uruguay in, in Canberra was established. And then later on in the early 80s, the consulate in, in Sydney, I mean, both are career offices. And this relationship has to do more with the immigration. So Im- immigration into Australia of uh, Uruguayans who came... It's quite significant, isn't it? It's quite a significant community. It is. It is. I mean, if you consider the size of our population again, and yeah, well, the fact that most of them didn't speak English when they arrived, mostly they they were coming here for, for work. So um, I believe Australia um, had recruitment program uh, in the late 60s and early 70s. Uh, so they offered uh, the Uruguayans the possibility to, to work in some jobs um, like 
carpentry or plumbing construction in general. So as I was mentioning, um, the Uruguayan community here in Australia has reached at its peak around 20,000 people. Yeah, 20,000 Uruguayans living in Australia. Obviously, these people have arrived in the late 60s and early 70s, as I, as I was saying. So that means now they have kids, grandkids, and grand-grandkids. Yes. So it's already in, in the fourth generation. What's some of the highlights of the relationship between Uruguay and Australia, what would you say? Is it, is it trade? Is it sport? Is it art? Is it agriculture? Um, unfortunately, it's it's not trade. That's no. something we, we have to work on it's because uh, the figures, they have been historically not very significant. And I think that has to do um, with the composition of our economies, you know, Australia and Uruguay. I mean, we, we are not complementary, but we, I mean, I wouldn't say competitors, because in, in many ways, we do fill in when, for example, there are Australian exporters to China or, or exporters of beef or leather or wool. I mean, I have um, had queries at the consulate that when they run out of stock, sometimes they need to fill in. Okay. And that's when yes. we, we come in and they import from Uruguay because yeah. they know that the quality of our products is is roughly the same or maybe even better. Okay. <laughs> I, I thought to say that, I mean, when yeah. it comes to beef, for example, yeah. Yeah. I mean, the quality of our beef is, is, is it's very well known. So with, Most, the growing, with the growing middle class in Asia, then Australia and New Zealand tries to fill it, and if they can't, yes. Uruguay fills it. Yeah. yeah. Okay. But we, I mean, from the trade point of view, um, wood, for example, that's mm. one of the very few uh, sectors that, that makes part of our uh, trade flow, mm. uh, as I said, not very significant because it comes to about $10 million per year in both ways, uh, export, import. So it's mostly processed wood and then honey and aluminium for uh, use in, in rural establishments like this famous Australian aluminium uh, tanks for, yeah. for the cattle. Yeah, okay. You know, they, when, yeah. when cattle, um, yeah. they need to, to water. Mm. Yeah, we, we call them Australian tanks. In Australian Europe, tanks. In the, yeah, in farms, because um, this is something we used to import from Australia and we, we still do. So, um, yeah, you asked me about the trade links. They are not that strong. So the highlights uh, between our relationship, I would say it's mostly, um, it has to do mostly with um, the communities, you know, cooperation, also educational. At the moment, we have got academic uh, cooperation um, between Australian and Uruguayan universities, um, in concrete, uh, Deakin University from, from Melbourne and the ORT, ORT University yep. in, in Uruguay. Now, from an investment point of view, why would Uruguay be a good place for an Australian business to go to now? Okay, I think um, there are a few factors I, I can mention. Um, the first of them would be the stability, political stability and a regard for uh, democracy. Um, we have been very proud of the safety of, of our democratic institutions in Uruguay. and uh, we, we keep them very dear and we yeah that's something that has to be looked after in in latin america in general because of what Your happened past, in the yeah. 70s i mm. mean yes you know with the military dictatorship you have to be very uh, vigilant don't you because of the past yes yes so um 
that's I think uh, the most important thing we have got. You know, the regard for the democracy and the political and social stability. After that comes the economical uh, stability, which can only take place if the um, government, if the institutions and the, the social cohesion is there. So um, our macroeconomic figures um, speak for themselves. We have got the first slot in many indexes like uh, transparency, um, fight for corruption, and equality of, of the distribution of income. Average economical growth is also number two, only second to Peru, for example. So in, in many of these indexes, we re really try to excel and we are really on the on the on the top notches. You've really grown your middle class, haven't you? To to yeah, record levels which and is, yes, important, yeah, which yeah. is something uh, that we we value a lot because historically, I mean, that has been uh, very present in our identity: big, educated middle class. In contrast to um, you know the very few rich and the big poor classes that has been the, the norm in other countries. You used to have a president who used to live on his farm and drive an old car around, didn't you? He was quite a yeah. egalitarian fellow. Yeah, um, former president uh, Jose Mujica. I mean, his story is is quite remarkable because he belonged to the to, um, guerrilla in the 1960s and 70s. He spent 11 years of his life in jail. When he came out, um, when he was free, he belonged to the to the political party that, that is now in office. And wow. uh, he, he did the whole um, escalation process from being a member of parliament uh, three times and then minister for agriculture and in the first left-wing government. That was from 2005 till 2010. And then he became president. So like Nelson Mandela, he went from being jailed yeah, something, to, to something like that. Later, something yeah. like that. Yeah. And um, yeah, it's very remarkable because he kept his values and ideals very, very present throughout his presidency. So that meant he didn't want to make use of the official residence. He opened uh, those residences for uh, programs, for example, um, uh, baby football academy and yeah, stuff like that yeah, okay. for impoverished uh, yeah. children, you know, yeah. coming from yeah. needy areas of yeah. Montevideo. And uh, even his salary was donated to some, some wow. farm cooperatives mm. in, the, in the vicinity of his farm because he, he didn't lose touch with that reality. He said, well, when, when I um, finish the presidency, I, I will still be living here. So um, mm -hmm. why should I, mm. you know, have this parenthesis, which is not my reality? And I think he, in a bit of an extreme mm. way, he expresses, I mean, what most of the Uruguayans have in mind when they think about uh, our true values, which is an egalitarian society, you know, where no one is more than another. And, and I think that's something we, we share with you Australians, mm. uh, because Australia is also a very egalitarian uh, society, even if uh, far more affluent uh, at the moment. But I, I would uh, say that any Australian visiting Uruguay would feel very at ease because of that, um, because, well, we are also quite laid back. Um, you know, coming to to lifestyle, um, we are relaxed and we appreciate nature a lot and yeah, quality of life. That's another one of the indexes uh, that we have to to mention. I think we probably have uh, one of the best qualities of life in in Latin America. In, in terms of business, what are the sort of top opportunities for 
Australia? Is it, is it tourism? Is it agriculture? Yes, Uruguay has approved uh, um, a few years ago um, public-private partnership laws, which means if you are an investor in certain areas of interest uh, in Uruguay, like logistics, infrastructure, energy production, and others, you will have the, the protection of uh, the Uruguayan government, and you will have the exemption of contributing to certain taxes, and you will have certain taxes are refunded in case you, you have to pay for them. This is a very important issue um, that contributes to the well-being of our economy and it's a foreign direct investment, which, I mean, at the moment we are the second only uh, country in Latin America to, to, I mean, in terms of foreign direct investment making part of, of the economy. So I think about 6% of our GDP is made up of foreign direct investment. And that's, that's essential for us to keep the, let's say, economic climate interesting, attractive to investors. Um, we have been trying to uh, sign agreements on uh, the protection and promotion of trade um, with many countries. We haven't done that with Australia yet, but we are on the path to signing it soon, hopefully. And for this, um, I have to mention, I mean, the, the importance of having been able to obtain the investment grade in the past years and improve the investment grade steadily since um, the early 2000s. Now, if I was an Australian business wanting to invest in Uruguay or trade, what would I do? Would I use Uruguay 21? Would I visit the yes, consulate here? Yes, yes. That would be the, the main um, agency. It's an agency which is... Uh, private public, they will have the right contacts and resources to channel and direct investors to the processes of establishing a company. Um, in Uruguay, there is no difference between foreign and local companies, and there is no restriction when it comes to currency. Unlike in, in many other countries, uh, you can use either US dollars or Uruguayan pesos, and there is no restriction when it comes to revenue made by the local companies or investment. So, um, yeah, Uruguay Ventuno, that's the agency that is aimed at uh, promoting trade and uh, investment. But obviously, embassies and consulates, we are always open to any potential investor, you know, um, making any queries. Uh, we will be more than happy to, to channel them. What, um, what customs do I have to be aware of as a business person in Uruguay, do you do you take people out to dinner or out to lunch? Are there any rules and norms you have to worry about? I would say our customs are pretty similar to yours. Mm. Basically, we are relaxed. We are laid back. We are relatively punctual. Yeah, I mean, it's it's pretty similar, you know, from to what you see here, let's say a business meeting, you know, shaking hands. Maybe you do... Kiss women. Um, oh, yeah? Yeah, yeah for the this. first yeah. time. Maybe Sorry. you don't do that here, but um, we also have the, the top notch for the consume of, of uh, mate, mate, which is which is basically uh, a tea mm. made of the mate herb. The problem with us is that we have so much of an addiction that we need to bring our thermal and the mate even when <laughs> we go to meetings or when we go on a, for a walk or something like that. So that's that's quite surprising to see. Is it good for you or bad for you? Or uh, neutral? It's totally healthy. Yeah, okay. Yeah, absolutely yeah. healthy. I mean, uh -huh. it's a bit of a stimulant herb. Yes. So um, 
I mean, most of the Uruguayans drink, let's say, up to two liters of mate per day. Wow. But I think it, it doesn't have to do so much with the effect. It's it's a bit of a ritual. Also means um, friendship, because, for example, if you meet a Uruguayan who is having mate, it's it's very likely that he or she will offer you one. It's a way to, you know... Um, feel friendly, feel close, mm, and mm. that's the origin of the drink, actually. Oh, amazing. So if you are going whips out the mate, it means you're, you're getting friendly. It's a good sign in your oh, business. Oh, yes. If, if uh, Uruguayan mm. offers you a mate, uh, mm. that, that means being interested and uh, being friendly. That's a good sign. Yeah. And that's if you go to Uruguay, you should try to do that. What are some of the challenges of doing business in Uruguay? Is it mainly distance or...? Competition um, from other countries? Or? Uh, distances, no, I, I wouldn't mm. say that's mm. a challenge. Maybe in the case of Australians, the language. Language, like yeah. We do uh, speak Spanish over there, but mm. having said that, many Uruguayans are able to speak English. So yes. it's, mm. um, I wouldn't say it's a, it's a huge uh, challenge. Uh, I cannot think of really big hurdles uh, no. when it comes to doing business there. I mean, it's a very open uh, country, um, open people, relatively educated people. Most of the people in the, in the middle class are able to speak a, a foreign language, either English or Portuguese. Right now, um, Chinese is being taught, even at schools. So, yeah, I mean, the, the idea is to have an open and easy-to-deal-with country as, as possible, and I think we are on the right track when it comes to that. So it's a yeah. successful small country, despite the neighbourhood, but with a lot of good things happening. Yeah, that's correct. Well, thanks for being on the show. Thank you, Tim, for the opportunity. Well, that's it for this edition of the Airport Economist. I hope you enjoyed listening and picked up a few useful tips along the way. The Airport Economist podcast series is produced by Liv Proud, audio production by Darcy Thompson, and executive producer is Jennifer Goggin. The Airport Economist is recorded at the studios of Podcast One Australia. For more episodes, head to podcastone.com.au Download the app or look us up on iTunes. And don't forget, there is also the Airport Economist TV series and book of the same name. You can find out more at our website, theairporteconomist.com, before you take off. Well, thanks for joining me. I look forward to our next business adventure together somewhere in the big wide world. I'm Tim Harcourt and I'm the Airport Economist.